0: To distress situations, a Reed Smith podcast. On this podcast, we cover current issues in financial restructuring over a wide variety of industries. I'm Keith Arzeda, a partner in Reed Smith's global restructuring and insolvency group, and I'm one of the hosts of this podcast. Whether your company is a financial institution or an in industry, we hope our commentary will be useful in managing the risks associated with distress. If you have any questions about our topics, feel free to contact our speakers. Welcome to our first episode of Distressed Situations. I'm Keith Arzada, partner at Reed Smith, and today I am delighted to be recording this episode with William Snyder and Don Reagan, both of CR3 partners. Both have outstanding credentials in the reorganization space. Both have acted as CROs, trustees, and people responsible for turnarounds in all types of situations. And today, we're very fortunate to hear about their most recent experience dealing with the J.C. Penney case, and to give a little bit of background, J.C. Penney's filed for Chapter Eleven in the Southern District of Texas over the course of the summer of 2020 during the COVID-19 pandemic. It was one of the few times I've ever appeared in court on a Saturday, and that's because of the technology that was made available to the parties and constituents in that case. Interestingly, many retail investors and equity holders were able to attend via the court's online presence. William, you were engaged as the financial advisor to the equity committee in the JCPenney case. What was your primary role? How did you get hired?
1: So we were recruited, I guess, talked to by several shareholders, called us and after they spoken to their attorneys and knew that we were in the area in Texas local and we had a lot of experience and big cases. I was the CRO in Pilgrim's Pride, and the Texas Rangers, and the Examiner in Murant. And in all three of those cases, they got 100 cents on the dollar for the entire constituency, including the equity got money. And so they wanted to explore that. That's something that they, being that I had that experience of 100 cent plans, and they were anxious to get in the money, they interviewed us and recruited us, and we ended up getting hired Our first initial scope was just basically to advise them, answer questions, and make a very high-level assessment of equity value. We were supposed to also go to hearings, and if we had to testify, do so. So JCPenney had been hit very hard by COVID. They'd been shut down for quite a while. So trying to figure out what their equity value is was very hard, but the management team had put together a five-year plan and we were able to leverage that and look at it. So when we first got started, that whole assessment process started out and it went fairly smoothly. That's how, that was the initial scope, Keith.
0: Yeah. So the interesting thing about this, how was it that the judge made funds available for an equity committee?
1: Well, you know, We were the only ones and the equity holders that thought they were in the money. Okay, so you got to realize that, right? Even the unsecured, when we got there, didn't think they were in the money. The banks, the secured lenders, didn't think they were in the money. So we were the only true believers in the case. But so were the shareholders and the shareholders. Many of them been shareholders for a very long time. A lot of them, Keith, were actually people who had gotten shares through the profit sharing plan of the company over years and years and years and years of service. So the shareholders were very deep, very broad, and very committed to the company. And they were very vocal. It was a very vocal constituency. They filed letters in the court, they showed up in hearings, they offered testimony. They really did not have a platform. They did not have a voice. So you had thousands of these voices out there on the internet trying to talk, showing up in court, trying to represent themselves, and they had no unified platform. So that's why the judge gave the money for the equity committee. Well, it's a quarter million dollars in bankruptcy on a case that big is a smidgen, right? And just to set up a committee so that they would have a voice and a platform and focus the efforts of all those shareholders towards a more useful end than just firing letters off to the judge randomly and showing up in court and testifying without attorneys. So that's what he did. He gave the shareholders a voice.
0: And the interesting thing about that voice is that was really brought on by the advent of online attendance at hearings. Previously, you would have been flying in there The the general equity holders would have had to fly to Houston to attend the hearings. And now they were able to create that voice and get that toehold in the case by being able to attend electronically. So now I want to turn the question to Don now. How did you go from being a limited advisor with a $250,000 budget to becoming a, a million dollar lightning rod?
2: Well, it was a very interesting dynamic in the case. As William said, the judge gave a budget so that the equity committee would have a voice, but many of them did not work through the committee. They continued to keep showing up and firing off letters and making statements on the record because, as you indicated, they could easily participate with the video ability. So we did back-of-the-envelope calculation When we first started, we thought, well, we would just educate them on the fact that equity likely was not in the money. But when we did our back of the envelope calculation, we did a preliminary DCF or discounted cash flow and market comp assessment, and we determined there likely was potential value. So our own focus as advisors for the committee shifted. We debated with counsel how and when to provide evidence of valuation, And at the time, our collective, when we started, our collective expectation was, based on the RSA, was that the debtor would file a plan and pursue a restructuring when they made the second dip draw, which they didn't actually need to make because they were sitting on $900 million in cash at the time. But that was supposed to lead them down the restructuring path. So that that was what we thought would happen. But after the draw, the debtor showed up in court and said that they were going to go forward with a sale and stated on the record that the related language in the RSA was just a red herring and that that language was there to distract you. So our committee had to immediately change directions. We needed to get valuation information in front of the judge. We couldn't wait for the plan and confirmation hearings. Their actions necessitated us filing an expert report under William's name regarding potential valuation. And after we filed that, that led to other pleadings and settlement discussions, which led to the agreement on an increased budget so that the equity committee had equitable resources to advance their claims. I don't know that that ever helped quell all of the disparate voices from the different equity committee. But I think that was how we we got there by filing the the report in an effort to advance their claims.
0: So. We all know that in in our field in restructuring, equity generally isn't in the money. And so let me ask you, William, directly, what were the elements of your initial findings that led you to believe that maybe there was an opportunity for equity to participate in the JCPenney case?
1: Well, uh, there were two main data points. So one was actually very easy data point, right? Uh, when we got there, the debtor had was building its cash. It, the cash ended up being built up to about a billion dollars in cash, just cash alone. And the inventory was another billion six after reserves. That's book value. That's after, you know, reserves for slow moving and the like. The real estate was appraised by Cushman and Wakefield at a lit value as a going concern value of 3.7 billion. So the hard assets, just, you know, inventory, fixtures, Cash in the bank and real estate was worth six point eight billion, and that's and the claims were less than that. So just on the hard assets, the company just appeared to be in the money. Additionally, they had an IP e-commerce business that did about a billion five a year. So JCPenney had about an annual revenue stream of about ten billion dollars, and the e-commerce piece of that was a billion five, about fifteen percent of it. And it was growing at 20% a year. And that was a difficult thing to value, but we approached it and valued it several different ways. We were sitting there saying that the range of value, hard assets, and the going concern value of the online business, which would have also included the trademarks, right? That would include the name and the IP business. Uh, you know, we were looking at $8.8 billion just an asset value. Then it, they also had done a five-year plan. In that plan, they their EBITDA got back to pre-2019 level. So they were looking at $800 million of EBITDA. And the way J.C. Penney got to that number is they didn't even have to really make money at the stores. The credit card business alone made over $300 million a year net just the credit card business. The the online business made another $300 million. So just by opening up the stores and doing the online business and doing the credit card business, they made $600 million. So the stores were projected only make $200 million. So the, the company made, I mean, JCPenney was a money machine. They actually generated cash. In the first month, they reopened the stores, and the following month, and the following month. So even in bankruptcy through COVID, having the store shut down, reopened, and all the travesties they went through, they generated money the whole period. If you look at the current performance, gave a lot of credence to the projections. I think the management did a very good job. They cut over a billion dollars of overhead out. I think it was a very credible projection. I thought it was a, the, the management team had put together a very credible turnaround plan and the underlying assets supported that valuation. So just the just the book value of the assets supported that and the company on a book value basis when they filed for bankruptcy, had a positive net worth. Okay, so that there was actually on a audited basis there was equity value. So you looked at all three. You had a book value basis, you had a asset basis, and you had a cash flow valuation. All trended towards a valuation, you know, in the eight to ten billion dollar range, which was well above the value of the debt. So. Like I said, our, our preliminary analysis, hey, there's a real turnaround plan here. I mean, I'm gonna CRO, right? Give me a billion five in cash <laughs> and a company that's generating cash in a bankruptcy that's going to generate 800 million. Give me that. And baby, I've got a plan. So I was you know, I was actually very excited about the prospects of them filing a plan. And when they said they were going to abandon the plan and just dump the assets during COVID period, that was that was very disheartening for everybody.
0: So, Don, you take the the data points that William just threw out. It begs the question: What happened?
2: Well, we scratched our heads um, throughout most of the case, but we filed we filed two expert reports. After we filed the first one, we immediately then contacted counsel and the financial advisor for the Unsecured Creditors Committee. We contacted counsel for the second lien holders, and we contacted counsel for the independent directors. We then also engaged in some media interviews with Dow Jones, I think the Dallas Business Journal, people who had been in contact with the chair of our equity committee who had some history and media relationships from other cases that he had been in. And so we tried with all of those contacts to get some traction for basically the plan that we set out in William's expert report. Assuming that you thought we drank the Kool-Aid and that we were out of our minds on valuation, it it seemed to make sense to us that you would allow us to go forward as the redheaded stepchild, peddling our frothy valuation and ride those coattails so that you would end up getting uh, a better recovery than what the debtor was expected to provide. But we were not successful. We didn't get traction with any of those groups. We weren't even all that successful in getting any good coverage in the media, which surprised us you know. throughout the pendency of the case. Uh, we continued to monitor where the debt was trading, thinking that if we could get that debt to trade up a little bit, that that might give us some traction. But the debt never moved throughout the whole case, except for the dip loan. The dip loan at one point, just part of the sale hearing, traded up to I think William, it was a uh, hundred and sixty-six basis points over over par value, and other things were trading at like a penny on the dollar. So as I said, we we scratched our heads. We made every effort that we could to try to get folks to to ride our coattails to try to increase value and get a better recovery for all constituents, not just equity. But we would. Hope that we would have increased the the recovery for all, but we were not successful, and it was it was quite a disappointment.
1: Yeah, and to follow up with that, if you look at Murant, okay, I was the examiner Murant, and you look at Pilgrim's Pride. In both of those cases, uh, there was no RSA, right? We just filed, but there's Pilgrim's Pride. Pilgrim's Pride was losing three hundred and fifty million dollars the previous year. And we were, we drew three quarters of our dip loan within a few weeks of. We had a four hundred fifty million dollar dip loan. We drew, I think, over three hundred million of it within a very short period of time, and it was looking very bleak. But we had some quick actions. We closed a bunch of plants. We got rid of people. We streamlined our product line, and we came out with a new business plan. And everybody got behind the business plan. Everybody got behind it. The debtor was behind it, the unsecured creditors committee, the banks. We published that business plan. And guess what? The securities believed it. And everybody started trading. All the securities started trading based on these projections. And pretty soon, our uh, bonds were trading at 15 $0.16 prior to the filing. And then even about that amount after we filed Within, you know, a few months of filing that plan, they were all trading at par. So the the market believed the plan and everybody in the company supported the plan. Everybody was out there touting it. The management was and the market believed it, even though the securities were trading as low as they were in in this case, JCPenney, and when you look at the Pilgrim's Pride, they all traded up at par because there was a general consensus in the marketplace that this was going to work. We never saw that happen at JCPenney. There was never a consensus that the business plan was going to work. I don't think there was ever a consensus among, you know, the constituencies in the case that this was where it was going to go. Even though they generated cash in the case and sent out a billion five of cash and making money, there was not that backing.
0: Well let me ask a question on that particular point, William and or Don. Maybe maybe you both want to weigh in on this. How much of this do you think was caused by the hysteria of COVID nineteen at the time? You know, if we look back at the summer, it was a very uncertain time. No one knew what was gonna happen with this strange, crazy new virus. It was impacting the markets in in really unpredictable ways, except for maybe retail and restaurants who were completely shut down as, as JC JCPenney experienced. Do you think that played into any of the difficulty in getting behind a plan?
2: I would say that when COVID hit and everything was shut down in March and the participants started putting together a plan in the RSA, which was extremely onerous and offensive. And I think even the judge said that on at the first day hearings. It was not unreasonable to the extent that we were in the middle of an unknown pandemic, potentially a -a once-in-a-lifetime thing none of us had been through. We didn't know what was going to happen. It was being called the retail apocalypse. So it was not unfair, I think, to have an onerous dip at the time because there were so many unknowns. But as we've stated, JCPenney did very well. They had a good business plan. They had a pretty robust e-commerce platform. They accreted over a billion dollars in cash. They started with 400 million. They grew that to a billion five, 450 was the dip. So a billion dollars of real free cash um, that was produced. Um, And the problem was that they never pivoted from the onerous RSA that they entered into in the middle of all those unknowns. William, what do you think?
1: Yeah, I think I think the RSA, you know, and now you see more and more of that where these a lot of these cases are predetermined when they go in. But to get back to, you know, Keith's question, I think COVID was also a big factor. You know, you had, they've been shut down. These stores were all shut down. And so no one knew how that was going to come back. More people were buying online. Even when they reopened, they never came back to full capacity, right? They had limited hours, limited staff. And so you, you end up with, you know, a lot of uncertainty with uncertainty comes, there's a lot of the securities never trade up, right? No one has faith that you're going to recover from COVID and get back to where you were. So, and now, by the way, we've seen this in restaurants. We've seen this like movie theaters have been shut down and restaurants have been shut down unilaterally by the government. The government just shut them down. You know, they closed them. And so, they didn't even have a chance to open and they've been closed for months and months and months. When you look at any anything with entertainment, you're talking about bowling or sports or anything like that or retail, theaters and all of these different industries have been really gut shot. Carnival cruise lines And the convention business, who's going to go to a convention and win? Can you tell me the next time you're going to go to um, Las Vegas to the ABI and hang out with 2000 people? I mean, nobody knows, right? I mean, so I think there's all this uncertainty, Keith, creates a place where you can't raise capital. You can't raise capital for these companies. Nobody wants to buy them. Nobody wants to invest in them, except, you know, loan sharks. And so the market value plummets and it's very hard to reorganize them. There's just a lot of uncertainty. And I think we're going to continue to see that through the remainder of this year. And I think there is a big question mark on where retail, where restaurants, where entertainment all pop out when this is all done. I mean, at the beginning of the COVID, I'd never, never watched Netflix in my whole life. And I've been sitting there watching movies with my wife a couple times a week. I'd never do that, you know, and now I'm doing it and maybe I'll keep doing that I don't know so things have changed they really have
0: so let me let me ask you and it this is almost an impossibly an unfair question but don I want to I want to address this to you without covid is the retail sector still in trouble
2: I'd have to say yes I I think that there is going to be A lot of things that we've experienced during COVID that are going to continue. So there has been a market shift to online buying. People like myself, who never used to buy online, used to physically go to a store. Now I buy everything online. And I, I think that most people are going to continue using online platforms, not just for retail and shopping, but also for food delivery and pretty much everything else, which means that All or most of the marginal players in the retail space are probably going to go by the wayside. And the ones who make it are going to be the ones that have robust e-commerce platforms and they're adaptable to change.
0: William, Don, I have to thank you very much for joining us today on Distressed Situations. It is a privilege and an honor to have you on our first episode. And to the audience, I hope you'll join us again soon.
2: Thank you, Keith.
0: Very good. Well, thanks for inviting us. Distressed Situations is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Allie McCardle. For more information about Reed Smith's restructuring and insolvency practice, please email distressedsituations at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, reedsmith.com,